Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome to another episode of Strange Planet. Looking forward to this conversation. It's, uh, it's been a bit of a back and forth, but we're finally making it happen, and I'm delighted because this is um, a fascinating area, uh, something called systematic biblical paranormology, and that's quite a mouthful, uh, but uh, we're going to learn all about it. And here to unpack what this is all about is Ken Ami. He's a longtime researcher and lecturer on issues pertaining to worldview philosophies and various sorts of religions. And in this capacity, he's posted thousands of articles on his website. He's been published in an apologetics journal and has been interviewed for radio and podcast programs. And uh, one of his focuses is systematic biblical paranormology. And uh, let me just give you his uh, website here as well if you want to find out more. Uh, but also the website, the, the URL will be in the, uh, in the description, in the episode notes, and you can just click on it. But that's truefreethinker.com. Truefreethinker.com. Ken Ami, welcome to Strange Planet. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I've not heard this term biblical paranormology. Do you want to, uh, let's just begin right there with the definition. What do you mean by systemic biblical paranormology? I believe I coined that term. That's why you've never heard it before. <laughs> so there's a, a somewhat known 
uh, fact that someone said I was one of the leading voices in systematic biblical paranormalology. And I said, well, it's easy to be one of the leading voices when you're pretty much the only guy out there. <laughs> so I coined that term for a few reasons. So, for example, we all know of theology proper, right? And then there's systematic theology. Okay. So uh, theology proper would be the study of God, the theos. Mm -hmm. Strictly speaking, God himself. Whereas systematic theology would be all of the other ologies that come with it. So angelology, Satanology, cherubology, pneumatology, eschatology, soteriology, you name it, all of those. So that's what turns it into a system, right? So that you're not supposed to have all of these ologies that are disconnected from one another, but you systematize them. You make them all uh, coherent. One flows from the other, right? Like a line of dominoes. Right, right. And so my focus was, well, um, there is God and there are we earth dwellers, but there's this whole in-between realm. And I wanted to know, what does the Bible say specifically about all of those beings? And so I set out to study all of those. And so that's why it's biblical and then systematic, because I tried to do the same as with theology, uh, systematic theology, which is, again, not to have them all as a standalone concepts, but is it possible to systematize them? And then paranormology, obviously the ology part referring to the study of. And then the reason I uh, opted for paranormal is because I was talking to a friend of mine and discussing how I'm really enjoying the study of all those otherworldly beings. And I use the term supernatural. And he instantly right. stopped me and he said, nope, there's only one supernatural being and that is God. And I was like, oh, yes, that's right. Because if the natural everything that is not god was a creation of god so he's technically the only actual supernatural being everything else is in the natural and so then i opted for paranormal which is kind of para running parallel to our reality is this uh, otherworldly reality so there you have it systematic biblical paranormology where i tried as hard as possible to just focus on what does the Bible say about those beings with as little um, commentary <laughs> from me, uh, as little as possible in terms of speculation. And, you know, if I have to speculate, well, we do because there's so little that we're told about some of these otherworldly beings, but I always make sure I um, elucidate that this, this portion is a speculation of mine. Otherwise, I can actually go down the line and tell you what the Bible says about all of these beings and the beings I'm talking about would primarily be angels, cherubim, seraphim, Satan, by extension, Nephilim. And then uh, in some of my books, I even get into um, issues of um, Leviathan. Uh, is there a Lilith in the Bible? Right, right. And uh, yeah, a bunch of, uh, you know, um, demons so the, all those categories of being and that's actually a, a key concept is that there are different categories of being i'm sure we'll, we'll get into that right you know it's interesting because uh i'm uh greek orthodox uh and 
and I grew, but I grew up in the United Church, and scant attention is given, you know, maybe some focus on angels, and we all know about the archangels and the cherubim and so forth, but scant attention really, almost as if, I don't know, they're em- not embarrassed, but they just, it's a no-go zone. They don't want to talk about uh, these other paranormal beings, if you will. But let me ask you, um, as, a, as someone who's studying this, what, I mean, I read your very impressive biology, uh, bi- uh, biography, rather, um, what other skills uh, and um, abilities do you bring to the study? I mean, do you, do you speak uh, or, or read ancient Hebrew or ancient Greek or anything like that? Sadly, no. Um, I had, when I was attending private Jewish school, I was obviously learning Hebrew. And then, uh, unfortunately, I really had nowhere to use it. Uh, at least back then, I mean, my life was very different. So by the time I uh, lived in Israel for two months, I, I could barely say a word. It was embarrassing, but, you know, so be it. But I, I would just refer to myself as a researcher. Okay. And that's why my books are um, research-based. They're very black and white. They're the kind of books I would want to read. They're no fluff, no puff, no anecdotes and just look look here are the facts as well as i can express them right that's the kind of reading i would like to do when it comes to subjects such as these let me just run down a a list uh, before we dive into um some of these paranormal beings um a list of your your work here an independent investigation of the baha'i faith the scholarly academic nephilim and giants what do scholarly academics say about nephilim giants uh, let's see what else we have a uh, Cain as serpent seed of Satan volume three considering the claims of various promulgators of this theory the occult roots of post-genderism and a history of changes to psychiatry and psychology uh, the king of Bashan is dead the man the myth the legend of a Nephilim giant Noah's question mark a uh, question mark yes Noah's flood <laughs> the deluge global or local volume one historical an historical survey of views from BC to 80 so some you know very scholarly um, works almost encyclopedic in some regards um, so let's uh, let's begin with um, well first of all tell me about to what extent the Bible focuses on the paranormal what does it tell us about the paranormal that is a very, very good point to discuss. And it's very important because, the, honestly, the more I read the Bible, the less I think of it as a text that is about theology proper, and the more I think about it as an anthropological text. Because the main focus is humanity, our creation, our fall, our redemption. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so... Anything else the Bible mentions about anything else is relatively brief. And the focus always comes back to how does that affect humanity? Because everything else somehow pertains to that we were created, to that we fell, and to that we will be redeemed. And so that's why there's times where, I'll give you an example, seraphim, one single text, period, that's it, full stop. (laughs) There's only one text, like one passage in the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, dealing with seraphim right now i grant you i derived out of that text as much as i could possibly squeeze out of it but but what i mean is um so yeah the bible um god was not interested in 
inspiring it to be uh, all you've ever wanted to know about seraphim or any of the other beings. It's like, look, these beings are out there. This is, they'll be mentioned when it's contextually relevant, but it's not a, no, it's not an all you ever wanted to know. It's not a uh, seraphim for dummies. <laughs> Uh, so, and that means that the reason, again, going back to why systematic biblical paranormology is because when we're told so precious little about something, we need to handle it very carefully, very carefully. And I've come to find that when I dive into an issue in exquisite detail, I end up finding out that other people who think they know that issue because of whatever memories from Sunday school or a sermon here and there, or maybe just a cursory watching of videos about it. Um, they think they're informed and they're not a lot because uh, I've come to determine that common knowledge are those things everybody knows, but nobody knows how anybody knows them. Right. And they don't so know when, what they don't know. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about the seraphim. Um, just a very quick story, and I've told the story before, so listeners, please forgive me. But I, I, um, my, um, I have twin boys, and when when uh, one of them was, well, they were both like maybe two and a half, three, just starting to form like sentences and so forth. And uh, we were over at uh, the, um, his godparents for uh, Christmas. Maybe it was Boxing Day; doesn't matter. Anyway, we came out out in the cold, and he immediately. I was carrying him in my arms. He immediately looked up, and um, and I said, "What is it, North?" And he described seeing something. He didn't have the vocabulary or the knowledge. Uh, he didn't know about seraphim, but he described some sort of a winged um, being, and he said it has eyes all over it. Wow! Eyes all over its wings. And is that was that a seraphim? Is that what a seraphim is described as having? eyes on its wings? I seem to recall that. That would be cherubim. A cherubim. That is a fascinating story. Uh, yes, that would be cherubim. So that's a... Okay, my mistake. So let's get back to the seraphim first and then we'll come back to the cherubim. What do we need to know about the seraphim? Give us the, the vitals. Well, now, when I discuss these things, I kind of like to throw in little passive-aggressive jabs <laughs> at uh, the people I term pop researchers. And these are the people you're going to readily find online because they're extremely popular, uh, but they're not necessarily credentialed in any field. Neither am I, incidentally. Um, uh, the reason I'm not a pop researcher is because I'm not very pop. <laughs> I'm just a researcher. <laughs> the pop um, research, yes. Yeah. So I like to throw in Hey, by the way, this is what you're will, you're likely to hear out there, but it's not correct. So, for example, and 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 as uh, an Orthodox, you might find this interesting. So, I hear references to uh, seraphim angels. Okay, now that is a category error, and it violates the law of identity. Mm. Why? Because seraphim are seraphim, angels are angels. They're distinct categories of being. So are cherubim. Three distinct categories of being. They have different job titles. They have different job functions. And they look different from one another. So just like I wouldn't say bovines are a kind of human because we both live on earth. Well, neither will I say that seraphim are a kind of angel because their job description is different than an angel. They look different. They're titled differently why would we mash them together 
So um, another thing that is uh, pop about seraphim is that they're reptilian or serpentine, you know, which is really cool, cool to talk about, you know, it's really exciting stuff. But uh, one thing you might find is the Bible, maybe it's just too boring in what it actually says, but I'll tell you um, the, the reason that that is claimed is because in the text where God sends uh, poisonous uh, snakes to bite the people, right? The one where uh, Moses ends up making the serpent on the pole, right? Okay, so those serpents are referred to by the term seraph. So therefore, the jump is, oh, seraphim are these otherworldly beings. Therefore, they are serpentine. And so that's a, that's a basic, basic linguistic error because the text actually refers to seraph nahash. It's the nahash part that refers to a serpent or a snake. Right. right. Not the seraph. Okay. So now if I forget, let's get back to this, the root word seraph. So now seraphim, we find them in Isaiah 6 exclusively. And one thing that we can know about them instantly is they don't have any serpentine fe features, period. They are described as having six wings. And let me let me try something interesting here. Can you picture six wings on a being? Wow, I can't imagine. Where, did, where is the room? There's no room for six wings. Uh, I guess you could have two on the head, two on the... Yeah, I suppose I could. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now let me ask you this. What sort of wings are you imagining? Uh, I guess I'm imagining, you know, kind of a, a, a feathered wing similar to exactly like a, right. like a, a raptor, like a big eagle's wing or right. something. So tremendous see, to me, that's man. interesting. Tremendous it's interesting. Man. Yeah. So, so let's think about the psychology here. We hear the word wing and yeah, it is natural, especially because of depictions that we think of feathered bird-like wings, but we're not necessarily told that for all we know, the wings are like a moth or a butterfly or a dragonfly, or maybe a bat, or what? Would that be too creepy? And why would we think that's creepy, right? right. So we have no idea. Well, it's just wings. But I just wanted to, to use that as an example of the sort of things that we jump to as conclusions. Right. right. When we backtrack, we're like, well, how did I get there? I got zero, zero data to get there. So there's really nothing there. They have wings. We don't know what they look like. We don't know how big they were, nothing. Okay, so there's that. <laughs> we know they had faces. So apparently a head, because with two of their wings, they were covering their faces. We know they have feet. Okay, serpents have feet, uh, faces and heads, but they don't have feet. Uh, with two, they cover their feet. And with two, they're flying around the throne of God, singing Kodesh, 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 right? Uh, holy, holy, holy. And um, so that's their basic description. We don't even know what their bodies look like. Oh, sorry, that they do have uh, hands and conceivably arms. So I, I would feel safe, again, speculation mode, that they're basically humanoid in form, because if they have hands and feet, it's logical and biological to um, assume they have arms and legs attached to them, and they have a torso from which their wings apparently proceed, and then the head with a face. So, so there you go. And that's essentially all we know about them. So, okay, back to the root seraph. Why are these serpents being referred to as seraph? And why are these beings referred to as seraphim? 
And incidentally, I'll just throw this in for fun. The M ending in Hebrew word is uh, male plural. Okay. So these were poisonous serpents. And what the seraph is telling you is that there's a special feature of these serpents. They were poisonous. And so when we look at seraphim, what we see them doing is going to the a fiery altar in heaven, picking up a coal, a burning coal, and putting it in Isaiah's mouth as a form of cleansing. So to me, that's the correlation. It has nothing to do with serpentine features. It has to do with being fiery. So why were the serpents for fiery? Because when you get bit by a poisonous serpent, there's a fiery sensation, like right, the right. burning of the bite of the venom. And so to me, that's how I made sense of it, is we see these particular beings having something to do with that altar. And, you know, just to make up a term that I could throw into one of my books, I referred to them as keepers of the eternal flame, just because I thought that sounded cool. <laughs> Very cool. Um, what is their role specifically? Do we know? What we get is that they uh, fly around God's throne, praising him, his holiness, right? Kodesh, Kodesh, Kodesh. And that they have something to do with the function of um, basically the, the 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 heavenly temple, right, where there was an altar that would fire, and they have something to do with the function of um, using its coals to cleanse. All right. Um, now, are you also relying on documents or, or literature outside of the Bible, or are you simply basing it on what's in the Bible, what we're told from the Bible? Okay, so I did publish a book called The Apocryphal Nephilim and Giants. So that one is specifically all non-biblical. And I did publish a book. Uh, boy, you know, it's funny. When you started reading my book titles, I wondered how far you would go. Because I published like 64 books. And I was like, I wonder how many he's going <laughs> to. We could be here an entire hour just reading titles. Exactly. So honestly, there's one a title I don't even remember how I titled it. But it's two millennia's worth of commentary by Jews and Christians about all these kind of beings. But again, if we're talking systematic biblical theology, then what we're, our context tonight is strictly biblical. All right. We're going to take a quick time out, uh, Ken, come back, and we'll talk about cherubim and angels and uh, uh, Satan, demons, you name it. Back with more of my conversation with Ken and me right here on Strange Planet. Don't go away. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. 
Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more... Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. The truth will set you free. 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 But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we are back with Ken Ami, longtime researcher, lecturer on issues pertaining to worldview, philosophies, and various sorts of religions. Why don't I work in a couple of extra titles here? Because uh, uh, you're incredibly prolific. Um, Hollywood aliens and UFOs, third showing, close encounters of the 666th kind, <laughs> or 666th kind, I should say. Uh, let's see, biblical or Bible encyclopedias and dictionaries on angels, demons, Nephilim, and giants from 1851 to 2010. Uh, folks, there's like six pages of uh, books uh, here on Amazon, so maybe a little bit later I'll, uh, I'll refer to some others, but uh, incredibly prolific, Ken. Uh, so let's talk about the cherubim. Again, these, these are not angels. This is a different classification. These are different beings. Who or what are the cherubim? So cherubim are mentioned more often than we might think. Uh, actual physical description of them comes exclusively from Ezekiel chapters 1 and chapter 10. And there may be, uh, oh, there's a very challenging text in Revelation. I don't even want to, I don't even think we want to invest the amount of time it would take to describe that. But I mean, I'll throw it in generically. Let's put it that way. So these, as in terms of physical description, uh, four wings, um, hands under their wings, Feet that are described as being straight and uh, would would not feet, but like uh, maybe, maybe hoof-like feet, hooves. And, and uh, interestingly, four faces. Okay, so they would be uh, human, lion, and, uh, either vulture or uh, griffin, you know, some sort of predatory bird, and uh, bull or oxen, ox. Incidentally, you might find your Bible might have it as you read along Ezekiel when he describes the faces again. It might list one of the faces as being the face of a cherub, 
which to me has to be a textural issue because if a cherub has four faces and one of those faces is the face of a cherub, then what? There's another four. Right. And then another, it's like uh, fractal geometry, right? It's right. just uh, four and four and four and four and four. <laughs> Interesting. Right. Yes. Excellent point. Yes. Um, and, they, and, and the cherubim have the eyes on the, covering the wings? Correct. Correct. Uh, now, yeah. so... In the scholarly literature, don't you know, uh, they are generally described as throne guardians. And I might remove the throne part because, yeah, they are generally depicted as, uh, in, in essence, traveling with God's mobile throne. But guardian would be more like it. Because, for example, think about when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Okay. Who was stationed? to keep them from coming back. A cherubim. Exactly. It was two cherubim. So they're guarding right there. And even the root of the word for the sword that they had that spun every which way, even that word shares a common root with the word for cherubim, cherub, you know. So even that. So that's a, an interesting aspect of their job function. And... Um, um, also, we do see that they were depicted as images in some of the paraphernalia for the temple, um, the sheets. And then uh, Solomon even took it upon himself to make like 10 feet tall cherubim that were, would actually statuary that would stand within the temple. So uh, somehow there was the knowledge of their appearance, because obviously if you're making an image, you need to know what they look like, right. hopefully. Right. And most very importantly as well, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's right, the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And on either side were cherubim. So this means, incidentally, you can throw out 99.9% .9 of all depictions you've ever seen of the Ark of the Covenant because they'll generally depict basically a human body with two wings each. Right. So for, that's it. That's Forget all that. They have to have four wings, four faces, and hope like feet. If not, then it's just not, it's not correct. Um, did they have, did, do the seraphim and the cherubim, and we'll get into angels in a moment, but do, do those two classifications, do they have free will? I would say yes. Uh, we'll get to that as we progress. Free will, but not the nature to sin. Mm. Free will and the nature to sin. And the nature to sin. Yes, oh, yes, interesting. Yes. Okay. Now, but let me mention something that will become, uh, in a circuitous manner, it'll become uh, very relevant to cherubology, which is that they're depicted as, again, uh, accompanying God's mobile throne with what has been rendered as wheels within wheels. You remember yes. that? Ezekiel's yeah. wheels. Yeah. Right. The Ophanim. And uh, so that's a very, very important point. When we, If you want to discuss Satan, when we get to him, that'll become incredibly important to, to realize something about the interaction of the cherubim and the Ophanim. But I'm going to leave that as a little uh, paranormology grenade. Pull the pin <laughs> and it's going to go off later. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Careful where you step. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's talk about the angels then as completely separate from the cherubim and the seraphim. 
the angels, the messengers? Yes, exactly. And that's part, again, so if we don't see cherubim and seraphim delivering messages, by definition, they're not angels. Forget forget what they look like, which is important, but just that alone would tell you, okay, something's off here. So angels, um, a very important thing to note about them is that you'll find people generally swap out the word spirit for spiritual. They'll use them interchangeably, where really a spirit proper is a disembodied being. Okay? Right. Where spiritual, a human being could be spiritual, but we are embodied spirits. So let me just back up a second again. A spirit proper, a spirit in and of itself is, by definition, disembodied, but it can embody, right? Like us human beings, our spirits, but not proper because we are embodied. Okay, so um, spiritual is different. It's more like a characteristic of a person right. or a being or whatever. So that's important. Well, I mean, uh, now, it's to suggest that, I mean, because we tend to have this kind of this cartoonish image of angels as being purely spirit. They're, we think they're omniscient, they're, they're everywhere, um, where, it, where if I'm hearing you correctly, um, they, they can also be physical, they are physical beings. They, I mean, Abraham hosted the angels, they, they partake, partook in food and drink. Um, so is that where you were sort of going with that? Exactly. Very discerning of you. And I, I appreciate that. You're, you're on point. So every time angels are described, they are described as looking exactly like human males, period, full stop. No wings. And let me throw this in. If angels are spirits, then why do we depict them looking like uh, human beings with wings, bird-like feathered wings? Well, that's not in the Bible. Okay, um, that actually happened because in the early centuries, A.D., uh, it, it came out of artistry. Uh, painters and sculptors mm. wanted to figure out, well, if I'm depicting a scene and the angel looks exactly like a human, how am I going to distinguish him? And they put wings just to show that these are the angels. That's where it came from. Likewise with halos, there's no such thing as halos in the Bible, but wings, uh, angels with wings and halos, that came out of just an art artists trying to figure out how do we send the message across, like, okay, in this painting, in this sculpture, or whatever it is, that's the angel right there. That's where that came from. So again, look exactly like human males and are described as performing physical actions. Right. And they're also okay. described as being, or maybe they're not, We, I have this impression that they are... Uh, beautiful. I would say that because loyal angels are not fallen, then yeah, they would be like, um, again, this is speculation, but um, they would be like the, the model human, right? Just if you could imagine a model human, like the, the uh, quintessent human. <laughs> right. Their pores are so clean, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Beautiful uh, on the inside Steve, of yeah, uh, Stephen, right before he's stoned to death, it's it said his face was like an angel, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, there's just something about him that was glowing, like you hear about pregnant women are glowing, you know? Right. Yeah, so when they're appearing and not wanting to hide their identity, that's another issue. 
then yeah, they would be, it's, they look exactly like humans, but you would say, wow, that is a exquisite human, right? <laughs> if you didn't know any a, better. There's also a hierarchy of angels, right? There's archangels and um, different different levels. Maybe we can get into the touch on that briefly when we come yeah. back. Kenny, okay. you can take another time out. Back with more of Strange Planet. Enjoying this conversation immensely. Hope you are too. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position. And I love these bumpers. Your carry-on luggage is safely stowed. You're about to leave everything you know behind. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Strange Planet. And we're back with researcher, author, Ken Ami. And um, we're talking about, well, it, it's a term he has coined, systematic biblical paranormology. So... If you're talking about God, we're talking about the supernatural. If you're talking about all things under God that he created that are part of, uh, part of nature but not outside of nature, then we're talking about the paranormal. And right now we're focusing on uh, the, uh, the angels. So the, um, as you describe them, they, they're almost indistinguishable from man, except I guess they have maybe a bit of a radiance about them. Um, they have, I'm guessing, super strength. Are they fearsome? Uh, they can definitely uh, get the job done in terms of um, taking on like entire armies. Yeah, no problem. Right. Uh, so I, I wanted to to fine tune something before we get to the hierarchy. Yes. 
which is that, okay, so a lot of people think that angels are spirits proper, uh, disembodied spirits, and that they change shape or the morph, uh, take on human bodies when they need to appear to us. Okay, that doesn't exist in the Bible. Just period, full stop. You might have a version of the Bible where in Psalm 104, verse 4, it says that he makes his angels spirits. But there's a reason why a bunch of versions, more correctly, have it as winds. Okay, because in, what's interesting is this is very relevant. In Hebrew and Greek, there's a word that can either be spirit or wind or breath. Okay, so Hebrew ruach and Greek pneuma. Now, that's important because as you read Psalm 104, the context is correlations to natural phenomena. So when you get to verse 4, you have to translate it as winds to correspond to the context of natural phenomena. It's, it, it begs for you to do that. So then what happens is that verse gets quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. So again, your Bible should be reading Hebrews chapter 1 as spirit, and then uh, Hebrews 1 plays off of that quotation to make a statement. So again, to be consistent, it has to refer to them as winds. Okay, so if I have every single time an angel is described, they're described as looking like human males and performing physical actions, and I have essentially nothing to go on in order to demand that they are spirits proper, then I'm not going to throw away the overwhelming amount of data I have because the one particular Bible I'm a fan of has the word spirit instead of winds. Plus, like again, there's no indication that they change shape or take on bodies, nothing like that whatsoever. So the conclusion is simple. They look just like human males having a physicality of their own, like a flesh of their own sort, which is unfallen. Right. And honestly, I, I think of them as most likely the way Jesus is uh, post-resurrection, right? Physical, right? but with added capabilities, right? Because angels, if they want to be uh, visible, they can make themselves visible. And if they don't, they make themselves invisible. So there's these added capabilities that we humans don't have. But in terms of morphology, yeah, just like human mean, beings. Now, if you want, let's jump to the, the hierarchy issue, yes, yes. which I, it's pretty simple. Uh, I would imagine if there's an order, it goes like this, the angel of the Lord, and then archangel, and then I don't know what you want to call them, regular angels. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's, pretty much, that's pretty much it. And the, the, now arch that, the archangels, there are, we know about Gabriel, we know about Michael, we know about Raphael. How many do we know? Well, the only one described as an archangel is Michael. Ah. I know that maybe in orthodoxy you have Raphael. That's not in, that's, let me put it this way. That's not in certain canons. Let's just Got leave it. it at that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, oh, this will be fun. Okay. So, okay. So how many angels are named by name in the Bible? And, and I know I'm blindsiding you, so I don't necessarily expect you to answer, but you just named two that are in the, uh, I don't know what to call it, standard canon, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Michael, Gabriel, that's two for sure. How many, so you're, you're quizzing me? How many are named? Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and say very few, maybe two. Yeah, so I'm going to say three for sure, one maybe. Mm. 
the third one would be in Revelation 9, um, Abaddon, or a.k.a. Apollyon. Ah. Right, the angel of the abyss. Yeah. Okay, so that one's easy to miss, but that's very specifically told to us. The maybe would be what is generally translated as wormwood. And that's only because it's referred to as a star. Yeah. And Revelation 1, chapter 1, does allow for when the context is fitting that you understand that a star refers to an angel. So that yeah, that's a maybe. Interesting. That's a maybe. I I did not know that. Um, are they? I mean, they're not omniscient, right? They're not everywhere at once. How do they move around? Well, that um, they are referred to sometimes as moving through the air. You know, which hey, I guess if Superman can do it without wings, so can they. You know, um, but that would be one of their abilities is to is to not choose to be subject to the laws of gravity let's put it this way see they, they have the ability to to choose to not interact with the certain things that we are forced to by our nature like being visible we have to they don't have to they can just choose to uh which order of angels interacts with humans all of them well uh, biblically um the angel of the Lord most certainly did. The archangel most certainly. Huh? Yes. Uh, well, uh, that's interesting. Michael, um, maybe not, because he interacts with Satan, arguing over Satan, uh, Moses' body. And then he is seen, I guess, lending a hand to Gabriel and then fighting a war against satan and his angels so maybe not michael may not actually interact with human beings but again doesn't mean he doesn't it's just right. that i can't point to a specific example gabriel most certainly does or did uh, he's interacting with daniel and mary and um other ones so so we could say that uh the what i call the regular angels for lack of a better term definitely do all the time i mean that would be regular for them whether we know they're angels or not, of course, because remember, we might entertain angels unaware. That's right. That's and and right. why? Well, because they look just like us. So if they want to pretend they're human, then you wouldn't really know the difference until something happens. So they let something slip. <laughs> the, the idea of, of a guardian angel, is that pop culture or is there some legitimacy to that scripturally or otherwise? I would say it's scriptural, but exactly how it plays out, that's very difficult. So, for example, when Peter is freed from jail and he shows up where the apostles were and some of the disciples, and they think, oh, we thought it was your angel, right? And uh, his angels will give charge. He gives his angel charge over you. So there is that concept of guardianship now. Is it one per human? Is it one per family? Is it one per what we call cities and states? I don't know. I really have no idea. Uh, I would, if I had to weigh, just speculate way out there, I would imagine that they're over regions. How, how large is that region? I have absolutely no idea. Okay. So we have to talk about something we talk about a lot on this program, and that is the fallen angel. Uh, are they... 
uh, from a particular, I mean, these are the ones that rebelled, right? They rebelled. Yes. They wanted to, uh, they wanted to run the, uh, the show, take over the throne room, perhaps. Uh, I would say maybe, but I don't think we have indication of that. Okay. Okay. So, so first of all, I think it's important to keep in mind that there's only a one time sin or of angels in biblically there's only one time okay so it's not like every now and then oh another group of angels fell in a few years later oh and a century later no it's we only know one fall or sin of angels and uh well if you ask me that would be recorded in genesis 6 what i term the genesis 6 affair right and uh that's Pretty obvious, uh, particular, just a more a really direct line would be Jude and 2 Peter 2, where they, uh, if you combine what they're saying, they're correlating the sin of angels to sexual sin, and they're placing it in the days before Noah. Right. So, I mean, if, it's, if, if they're not talking about Genesis 6, I don't think anybody would have any idea what they're talking about. Let's put it that way. Right. This is the the uh, the chapter where they talk about um, taking the daughters of men, what right. by negotiation, by force, maybe both, uh, and producing um, offspring. Right. Hybrids. Right. And so now, if you plug in our biblical angelology into that affair, you see how the, the, there's no kind of issue with it. Uh, they didn't, there's no indication they had to take on bodies. They already had them. So how did they do that? The good old fashioned way, you know, right. and why would they be missing if they look like human males? Why would they lack the key feature of a male's anatomy? Right. I right. mean, everything's there. And now if you ask the logical question, well, why would God create them with that sort of plumbing if they really weren't supposed to be using it? Right. I guess I'll answer you that when you tell me why he put the forbidden tree in the garden when he they no one was supposed to eat of it. Hey, uh, but there it is, uh, just well, just like the beginning and the end. So he he knew how the movie was going to end before he made it. So granted, yeah. you know the way I think of it is: look, um, I'm sexually compatible with billions of women, billions, but I'm not supposed to be except for one because I'm married. So right. there you go. Why do I have this anatomy? When I can't use it on billions of women, well, because there's an appropriate function for it, even if that function is that you're essentially celibate. Uh, I mean, I don't know how else to express it, but that um, that's, that explains itself. And incidentally, it explains why the two groups are exclusively male sons of God with exclusively female daughters of men. It has to be exclusively male sons of God because angels look just like human males. And let me throw this in just for fun. Are there angels who look like human females? Maybe there are, but my point is we're not told about them. Right, right. That there it is, yeah. So the offspring, the Nephilim, um, were, they, were they a race of giants? So that would beg the question, what does giants mean? Because that's a vague, generic, subjective, and multi-usage modern English word. So, uh, for example, I'm six even, you know, maybe six one with my shoes on. I've been called a giant many, 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 many times throughout my life. 
So is that what it means? Well, some people say, well, no, it's a few inches taller than the subjective parochial average. And some people say, well, no, it's various feet taller than the average. And some say, no, it's entire body lengths taller than the average. And then when you get to uh, pseudepigrapha, such as uh, First Enoch or Ethiopic Enoch, he has Nephilim being miles tall, okay? 3,000 Ls, that's miles, that's great folklore. It's poor reality, but it's great folklore. So were they giants? Uh, bottom line is Nephilim appear in two texts, Genesis 6, which gives us no physical description whatsoever. And incidentally, if you want to jump from that, the modern English word giant implies unusual height. That begs the question, how unusual? But let's just let it go. That would be a, what's known as a word concept fallacy. It's just assuming that one single word is supposed to be telling you more than it is actually telling you. And if you want, we could dig into the etymology uh, there because it's very telling. The other text is number 1333, which the pop researchers will pick up uncritically without interacting with the narrative. They'll pick up one single sentence and they'll use it as a premise upon which to build an all-encompassing grand theory, okay? So the issue with uh, number 1333 is that it's recording a uh, quote-unquote evil report stated by unfaithful, disloyal, contradictory embellishers who made up uh, five assertions about which the Bible knows absolutely nothing, okay? And, and there's a reason why there's is the only Paul's flood reference to Nephilim because they were just making up a fear-mongering, scared tactic tall tale. And that's one thing they claim is that Nephilim were so incredibly tall that in comparison, the Israelites look like grasshoppers. It's like, okay, but that is an absolutely unreliable source. So the way I put it is, were they unusually tall? I have absolutely no idea because we have no reliable physical description of them until, you know, later for folklore, sure. But what about, Goliath? what about Goliath? Okay, so Goliath was a Rapha, not a Nephil. Let's start there. Okay, and now I understand that the Masoretic text has him being six cubits in a span, just shy of 10 feet, okay? But the earlier Septuagint and the earlier Dead Sea Scrolls and the earlier Flavius Josephus all have him at four cubits in a span, just shy of seven feet. Now, why is his height actually told to us in the Bible? And incidentally, his is one of only two specified heights told to us in the Bible. Well, the issue, remember that I mentioned um, being tall or large or huge or all these terms, they're subjective to the parochial average. So what was the average? Well, the average Israel male of those days was between five foot and five three. Okay, that's males. So females were on average shorter. So when you're when you're like five foot even, five, one, two, or three, and this guy's just shy of six feet, yeah, that's a pretty I'm mean, just shy of seven feet, sorry. Yeah. That guy is a pretty impressive when a sight to behold. Yeah, sure. It's just like I'm six foot tall. If I'm standing next to a pro basketball player, 
none of whom quite reach eight feet, but they're almost there. Yeah, you, I mean, I mean, I have a friend who's six three, and it's noticeable to me when I'm talking to her. I'm like, wow, she's <laughs> taller than me. That's that's pretty tall. All right, we're um, uh, I want to squeeze as much of this in, in as we can here. We got about eight minutes. Um, when my understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, when a nephilim died, the nephilim's spirit became a demon. Is that correct? That is what I'm going to term folklore from millennia after the Torah. Okay. I think it was a good guess, but it's not biblical. I think it was a good guess, but to me, it didn't quite do the job. So I'll tell you my theory very, very quickly. And I've outlined it in my books, but my theory pulls all the biblical data together to give us a biblical concept of what demons are. And in my mind, so we begin with angels being physical beings Jude and Peter tell us that they were the sinful ones were incarcerated. Okay. So now my theory is that the demons are actually the, the disembodied spirits of angels. So their bodies are incarcerated. Their, their spirits are roaming the earth wreaking havoc. And that actually, I wrote a peer reviewed paper for a Christian par, um, parapsychology journal. And I explained something about, the characteristics of these beings and how it explains a lot about them. So, for example, why are they specifically terrified of being sent into the abyss? Well, because if they did, then they would re-inhabit their angel bodies and then they're stuck down. They're doing a hard time for who knows how long, decades, centuries, millennia. And why is it that they seek to embody such as through possession? Well, because being embodied is something that's natural to them, and they want to sense that again. Why do they want to be worshipped in the form of idols, which are images? Again, to see themselves depicted physically. So, that, so there's a lot about them that is explained by th by recognizing them as disembodied angels. All right. And incidentally, you don't find demons pre Genesis six, and you don't really find them really after the release of what I think are the fallen angels in Revelation 9. So go ahead. All right. So uh, Satan, is Satan the same as Lucifer? Now, remember when I talked about the names of the biblical angels, and I'm sure somebody was thinking, well, you left out Satan or Lucifer. It's like, well, but he's not an angel. He's a cherub. Hmm. Okay. Now, remember I talked about how something about the cherubim and Ophanim would become very important. Yes. Okay, so yes, I would say that, um, okay, so the word Lucifer, that would be, I've written about it in my books, but it would be, uh, it would kind of uh, be distracting from our context only because it would have to get kind of linguistically complicated to discuss okay. that. But yes, let's just say yes, that's fair enough. Okay, <laughs> so he's a cherub. We got to just... Uh, apply our biblical cherubology to him not angelology so um and i'll and i'll give you an example of why that's so very important it we're told that he entered judas right think about that he entered into judas you don't see angels entering anybody and and um and satan is not a demon Okay, by definition, if you want to go the folkloric route, he wasn't a nephilim, he wasn't a nephil. 
And if you want to go with my biblical theory, he was not an angel. So how on earth is a being that I'm saying is physical in its own physicality, how does he enter a human being? Well, now here's where you have to apply your biblical cherubology to a cherub. So what we find out is that Ezekiel tells us that the spirits of the cherubim were in the ophanim. Okay, <laughs> so one one of the capabilities of a cherub is that he can have his spirit leave his body and enter. In this case, I don't know if you want to call opening beings or objects, whatever. And so when you realize that is a capability of a cherub, aha, uh -huh. that is how Satan could enter Judas, because it's not a physical thing. He had the ability to move his spirit from his own body into Judas, you see. And this is why it's so important, like I emphasized at the beginning, to take the little bit that we're told and take it very carefully and apply it. Because otherwise, you could invent all kinds of stories about how that could have happened. But it's like, wait a minute, you just need to apply what we're told about Cherubim, and you got your answer. So um, Satan, the, uh, the fallen angels, did they all come down... Uh, sort of, is it Mount Hermon in Genesis 6? Is that where they they came? Okay, so I'm going to take us back just one step uh, because you, you asked about uh, free will. Oh, yes. Right? And so I would say, well, yeah, since angels sinned and Satan sinned, I would apply that to a free will decision, right? Um, the thing about Mount Hermon really uh, comes out of... Uh, Enoch, first Enoch, Ethiopic Enoch, again, millennia after the Torah. So is that where they came down? Well, I don't know. I don't really care. I mean, maybe, but that's not what we're told anywhere in the entire Bible. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. We're, we're just told they, they came to earth somewhere about. Yeah. Where, where is Satan and uh, the fallen angels now? So the fallen angels are, in my theory, they're physically incarcerated and spirits are roaming the earth. Satan is just running about the earth and still has access before God, incidentally. Okay, so the way I would describe it is he was, when he, okay, I believe that Genesis 3 records the action he took which caused his fall. And then Genesis 6 records the actions the angels took which caused them to fall. These are two different falls. But again, one is of a cherub, another is of angels. Two different stories. Ah, right. Um, even though Satan definitely had something to do, because in Revelation 12, he's depicted as a dragon whose tail uh, sweeps a third of the stars, again, which we're allowed to think of as uh, angels, and threw them to the earth. So he had something to do with it. But the motivation he had was different. He wanted to be as God. In terms of usurpation, incidentally, I always say it's good to be as God in terms of emulation, mm. but not in terms of usurpation. Okay. Whereas their motivation, honestly, it seemed like nothing more than earth girls are easy. You know, uh, <laughs> baby got back, you know, they, they were attracted and Satan had something to do with, yeah, go ahead guys, you know, go for it. But Satan, uh, as we see in Job chapters one and two, for example, he got fired from his original job as a throne guardian or a guardian in general, 
and, and now he is uh, roaming the earth, causing havoc and reporting back to God. Whereas when you get to Revelation 12, there's a war in heaven. And incidentally, a lot of people will put this in primordial time, right? In um, before God created human beings, there was this heavenly rebellion way back then. No, I don't see that whatsoever because I, I don't know about the rest of Revelation, but Revelation chapter 12, it's fairly obvious that it's chronological. And that war is a post-Jesus ascension war. Now, did it happen already or, or is it yet to happen? I don't know. I would imagine it's yet to happen. But uh, what you see is that that when when Satan and his angels lose that war is when he's cast to earth and he's stuck on earth. That's why he's so upset. He's no longer allowed to come before God. You're done, buddy. That's yet to happen, most likely. I, I would think so. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. Yeah. And I learned a lot. This was a, a great conversation. Thank you so much. I hope we can do this again. There's so much more to discuss. There is, but wow. Did we ever cover a lot of ground? This is... We had, uh, I mean, angels, cherubim, seraphim, Satan, demons, and even a little bit of Nephilim. That's not bad. All right. Until next time. Thank you so much. Thanks. God bless you. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.